You guys can take a seat. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ash, and I get the privilege of directing our student and family ministries here, as well as leading our community and discipleship efforts churchwide. It really is a privilege to be here with you this morning. Happy Mother's Day to you moms out there. Uh, hopefully you had a chance to drop off a flower. And I, I know Mother's Day is a bit of a loaded day, right? So some of us, this is our first Mother's Day without our moms um, or our, our relationships with our moms are sort of intention, or I know a lot of you honestly haven't even had an opportunity to be with your mom this past year. So my hope and prayer is that you can celebrate or remember a significant woman in your life uh, today. So I am a mom of a little guy. You've probably seen him running around here. So my husband, friendly reminder yesterday, said to me, I read this thing online where dads on Father's Day are like, yes, let's hang out. Let's do something as a family together. And moms are like, hey, just slip something under the door and just leave me alone. Um, I'm not quite there, but I'm like real close. So I was like, can I just take a nap? Like, that's really all I want. Like, really appreciate the breakfast in bed because you really know how to make pancakes, husband. He doesn't know. Um, but I'll just take the nap. Um, but hopefully you moms out there can encourage me later that at some point you really do want more than a nap on Mother's Day. But um, in all seriousness, I really do hope you have a great Mother's Day. Uh, and as I was thinking about this morning and our final question in Better Decisions, this series that we're sort of wrapping up, uh, I remembered this question that I sort of bugged my mom about as a lot. And if you're a, a parent, you're probably going to go, yep, I, I know that question all too well. Um, but I can remember being a young kid at our local pharmacy and... Uh, that was sort of where we had everything. Like you had candy, you had videos to rent. That was like a thing that we used to do. Rest in peace, Blockbuster. Um, actually, there's one left. Uh, but in all seriousness, we would go and my mom would sort of be shopping and I would look at her and I would go, hey mom, how much does this thing cost? And I would have a handful of like change, pennies, dimes, which were all their money anyways. But I was like, do I have enough money to buy this thing? And she would do one of two or three or four things, and she would look at me and she'd go, for sure, you have enough, you know, you have 25 cents, you can buy the candy bar, we're good to go. Uh, or she would look at me and she would say, you know, as much as you can reason with an elementary school student, which I don't really think you can do, she would try and say to me, she would go, you have enough money, but I just want you to know, if the ice cream man comes down our street later, you will not have enough money to buy an ice cream cone. So you better really want that toy or that thing that you're trying to buy. And I, as a really wise elementary school student, would go, I hear you, Mom, and I want the toy. And then the ice cream man would come down later, and I would be livid that I did not have enough money. Moms, this is all too real for you. Um, or the third thing would happen where she would say, you know what? You don't have enough money. And because I was an angelic toddler or young child, I would look at my mom and go, you know, I didn't want it anyways. And I would quietly leave the store. I'm so thankful that when I was growing up, cell phone cameras were not a thing because I'm sure my mom's watching this. She would tell you like there were plenty of times where I would have been the toddler or the young child being carried out of Target because I didn't get the toy that I wanted. But my favorite response from my mom was always this one. Ash, you don't have enough money, 
But what was intended to cost you, I will let to begin to cost me. I will cover the cost of whatever it was that you wanted. I will buy this on your behalf. And moms are great at that, right? What was ever often intended to cost us as individuals, they start to take upon themselves. They let their love for their children, in most cases, be so costly. I think about my mom and the sleepless nights, or even myself as a mom, through those first couple of years. You don't sleep. You sacrifice your body. You make 12 meals for toddlers that they don't eat. Like, if you have forgotten that stage, let me just remind you, okay? Um, it's a real thing. Uh, and also, you know, I think about my mom most recently as I'm a grown adult, and I just had a son, and she came to help us when he was born. And I was kind of one of those moms that for the first 48 hours, I was like, I feel like someone always has to have their eyes on this baby. Like, he cannot be left alone. Like, something bad could happen because, you know, he can move and stuff. No, they just lay there. But I said to my mom, my mom would say things to me like, well, why don't you go take a nap? And I would go, that's fine, as long as you stare at him and don't, and make sure he's okay. And so, you know, it would get like 10 o'clock and she'd be like, I got it. She probably fell asleep on my couch, but that's neither here nor there. Um, she let her love for me and my family be costly. And moms are great at this. They sort of represent that first for us. And you know, dads aren't far off, but it's not Father's Day, so we'll save that for somebody else. Um, but think about the women and the moms in your life who really let their love for you become costly, where they took something on on your behalf. And friends, today our question, our final question in our series, Better Decisions, is one that is costly. It's one where we're going to look at what does love require of me? And if I can just be honest for a second, this question has been so convicting and challenging to me as I have prepared this morning. The other three questions, what's the wise thing to do? Honestly, I think I should have preached about that and Daniel should have preached about this because I am like, wise thing, that's what I'm doing. Going up that mountain where the volcano's gonna go off, that's just dumb, don't do that. Um, but somehow we got this mixed up because I think the Lord was up to something. Because the wise thing is an easier question for me. This what does love require of me is a challenging question. The conscience question or what's the story that I want to be able to tell about this decision I made are all things that I run my life through. And I think in often, in most times I go, what does love require of me? Of course I'm asking that question. I'm a follower of Jesus. I love the people around me. But what I have found in the scriptures and in the commands of Christ is that just running it through my subconscious, Jesus has more for us. And I felt like what he said to me for this morning was that we shouldn't move on from this question until we are convicted into action. That we should keep asking ourselves this question, what does love require of me? What does love require of you? Until he convicts us into a greater type of love and action. So, welcome to church. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are grateful for you. We're grateful that your love for us has always been costly. Um, that it was you who paid the ultimate price for us. Pray that you would be with us as we open your scriptures and spend time together um, learning and growing. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and of your will. It's in your son's name. Amen. So I want to look at this question from two sort of vantage points. One, what does love require of you or me? What does love require of us as individuals, followers, disciples of Christ? And then secondly, what does love require of us as a church? Because if you're new around here or you've been missing or you've been here, you might have heard these four words that we've been saying a lot, which is we are four bolder with love. And if I can say anything, I think love of those four words is perhaps the most loaded of the four. And so what I hear in that sort of mission statement or vision statement is how or what does love require of us as a church as we seek to be for our city? And certainly that could be a sermon in and of itself, um, but that's uh, the second part of the sermon. Uh, we're going to start with ourselves. Um, in addition to my role here, I am a therapist, and so often people will come into my office and they'll have a lot to say about everyone else in their life. They'll have a lot to tell me about what's going on and how they're driving them crazy, and then I come to this point in a session that most of my clients hate, and I sort of quietly look at them and I go, hey, but what about you? And so while I would love for us to talk about the church and what does it mean for us, I think we have to start with ourselves. We have to try and figure out what does love require of us because I think if we can get that right, then the church question becomes a lot easier. So I want to look at a verse in Philippians where Paul is sort of talking to the church about what does it mean or how do you love one another in your relationships. And it reads like this, it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." This verse has readily convicted me probably regularly for the last 10 years of my life. Um, I can remember sitting in a kitchen, uh, having a staff meeting with a bunch of other people who were doing sort of parachurch ministry here in Boulder. And one of my colleagues had texted another colleague just Philippians 2.5. That's it. Which in the New Living Translation actually reads um, that you must have an attitude or the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And my one colleague who had received the text message immediately goes, oh, I must have an attitude problem. Like I'm getting sort of called into correction. And the other colleague quickly sort of reassured him of, no, 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 no. You, my friend, have taken on the attitude of Christ as Paul describes here. You have really lived into serving one another. You've been committed to the flourishing of our team at the expense and the cost of yourself. And I feel like often the Lord brings me back to that moment in that kitchen where he sort of showed me this, this concept of what does it mean to have an attitude like Christ? And I want to say he keeps readily bringing this up because I've spent much of the last 10 to 15 years working with teenagers who, if you have been a parent of a teenager or you have a teenager, they have an attitude problem most of the time. Um, or if you are a teenager, you do. Um, let me just remind you. 
Uh, and so I've, uh, I've just, you know, taken it as, oh, the Lord just wants me to keep working on the attitudes of these great teenagers. But really, what I feel like the Lord has brought me back to this moment is often in times in my life where my attitude is quite distant from that of Christ Jesus's. And he goes, hey, let me remind you of how important it is to have an attitude like Christ. And so let's look at what Paul had to say in terms of what does it mean to have an attitude like Christ. In the beginning, he starts talking about this, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to our own advantage. Friends, our Christianity doesn't get to elevate our status. Christ himself did not use it to elevate himself above the people that he elected to come down to earth to do life next to. So when we find ourselves in situations where we might be looking down upon someone or belittling them because they don't hold the values that we hold as followers of Jesus, or they don't believe the things that we believe, or they don't raise their families the way that we have elected to raise ours, I think we need to take a deep breath and go, Lord, show me how to love, show me how to have compassion and empathy and an attitude like you. And you're going to see this theme that's sort of in the second half of this verse of laying your life down. Christ certainly had an attitude of laying his life down. We don't have to look far into the gospel story to find a Jesus who was humble. We don't have to look far into the gospel to find a Jesus who came to serve rather than be served. We don't have to look far into the gospel to find him loving everyone, the religious elite, the lowly sinner, the tax collector, everyone. But my question to us is, friends, how far do we have to look into our own stories to see us loving people humbly, everyone, with service? How far do we have to look into our own lives and our own stories to find the essence and the heart of Christ as we seek to love those around us? Unfortunately for me, I think we have to look further than I wish. Because, friends, this isn't new news. We learn this from a very young age. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. Love one another as the way that I have loved you care about people. This is all over our world. Then why do we not see more evidence of it? Why is it hard to find? I think it's partially because love is a bit of a tricky word, right? It's not easy to figure out what does it mean to love someone. There's a lot of thoughts about that in our world. But John has something to say about it that could perhaps help He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. See, there it is again, this whole concept of laying your life down, being committed to others flourishing more than your own. 
And what you find when you sort of do a search of love in Scripture is that it's often in a command form. We see Jesus giving that command multiple times. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second of these is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another as I have loved you. It's all over Scripture in the form of a command. And what I love about our New Testament writers and Paul and John and even the words of Jesus himself is they don't talk about love from this, hey, do it to the best of your own ability. Just grit your teeth and with all of your might, love the people in your world. No, they talk about the love Christ has for you and for me first. And then out of that place, out of that love, we seek to love the world around us. Never do they go, hey, love with what you've got, Ash. No, dig deep into the wells and the reservoirs in the story of the gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus. And out of that, love the people in your world. Friends, when we look at the words in 1 Corinthians of love is patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs, no, it, it doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices in truth, it protects, it trusts, it hopes, it perseveres. That type of love, I and you cannot do. That type of love comes from a transformation inside of us of Christ living through us. And love that should move us in the direction of humility and service. And so to help us sort of answer this question of what does love require of me, I want to offer you two more questions. Because that's what Jesus would do. Answer a question with a question. Right? Um, I think he would say, um, when what does love require of me? Is your answer costly to you? Does it cost you something? Because if at first blush it's not costly, I think we need to go back. And we go, Lord, what more else would you have me do? What else would you help me find and look? Because those words of 1 Corinthians 13 are not easy. If we think they're easy, there is more for us to lean into. And the second of these questions is this, who is it that you are loving in this situation? Certainly Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, so I'm not asking you to just lay down yourself. But I am asking you to go, is the, most, is the thing you are doing most loving to you? Or is it most loving to the person out in front of you? Because Jesus has some pretty strict words about what it means to just love the people that love us, right? We know this. He says even the sinners do that. But when we start looking around at who are you loving in this situation, is it the person most close and most easiest to you in this decision? Or is it the further out? Is it the difficult person? Is it the person in the place or the thing or the situation that has pushed you to your knees? That has made you pull on the reservoirs of Christ in you. Because I think that's the invitation that Jesus and Paul and New Testament writers bring us into. So, what does love require of us as the church? 
John, quoting Jesus here, says, A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If we think about the context of this verse, of what's happening in and around it, um, Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. He's predicted that Judas is going to betray him. He excuses Judas to go do that. And then he turns and he looks at his disciples and he says a new command. Which you all know that at this point he has already given the, the greatest commandment. He's already been asked, what's the most important one of the 618 or 13? What's the most important one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second of these is this, love your neighbor as yourself. They know that. They've been commissioned with that. They know that that's a command. So here's Jesus going, oh, and another new command. It's not all that different, but it is a little bit slightly sort of articulated for the disciples. And I'm always just sort of struck by the buildup of this statement. The disciples weren't lost on the fact of they've seen Jesus love people. They've seen him feed 5,000 They've seen him heal the broken. They've seen him spend time with the sick. They've seen him eat with the religious elite and the lowly sinner. They've seen him with love in action. And here he says to them, sort of just a final word, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And it's by this that everyone will know that you are my disciples. I read that and go, if the disciples... The church, if we as Grace Commons do not love one another, it's arguably that our ministry is mute and void. That the way that Boulder will know that Jesus is Lord is by our love for one another. That the best recipe for us growing in our discipleship is actually to turn towards one another and love one another. That's discipleship, friends. So Grace Commons, a couple of questions for us. Is our love for one another patient? Is our love for one another kind? Is our love for one another not envious or boastful? Is our love for one another not proud? Is our love for one another not dishonoring, but instead honoring of one another? Is our love for one another not self-seeking? Does it not keep a record of wrongs? Are we not easily angered towards one another? Does our love for one another hope, persevere, and protect? I think we tell the story that we are the disciples of Christ to our city and to the world by the way that we love one another. This is one of those things that I think similar to sort of earlier when I was like, this just lives in our subconscious. We go, of course we're good at this. You look around here and you go, we're a church. Of course we love one another. We're so good at that. That's what, that's what we do. Friends, I just want to quietly and subtly remind us of some wilderness seasons that we have recently traveled through that I think show some of our best moments and some of our not so great ones. A global pandemic 
Friends, it's been divisive to our world. It's been divisive to our city. Do you get vaccinated or you don't get vaccinated? Do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? Do you social distance? Do you not? What do you do? What should the church do? Friends, those questions and the difference of opinions live within the four walls of our church. A political season, easy to see in our world how it has been divisive and torn apart our country. Friends, those difference of opinions and the ways that it has built wedges in our country live within our church. The question of what should the church do about racial justice, again, a variety of opinions. All of that lives within the four walls of this church. And a pastoral transition, a name change, a capital campaign, lots of opinions about that, right? Those opinions, again, have the opportunity to unite or divide us, for us to choose to love one another or go in different directions. These were and are clear opportunities for us to turn towards one another in love. For us to go, even if we disagree, we can still have an attitude like that of Christ. We can lay our lives down for the flourishing of one another. We can seek to come together even when we hold different beliefs. And friends, I don't think that if we can't figure out how to love one another inside these four walls, that we'll have much success on the outside. That really our success and our ability to be four bolder with love starts here. It starts with you and with me and the ways that we care and love for one another. It's us asking the question, what does love require of me as a member of Grace Commons? What does love require of me as a part of the body of the church of Christ? And I think it echoes those words of patience, kindness, honoring one another, humility, Letting things go. It's not easily angered. We seek to protect hope and persevere together. So what do we do? Because again, similar to my clients, it's easy for us to go, we're not a part of the problem. And we don't really see how we can be a part of the solution. Friends, we all have a part in playing towards the solution. Towards telling the good news of Jesus to our city. Every single one of you here, at home, online, has a part to play in the city of Boulder and our world knowing that Jesus is Lord. And your part is important. And part of the most important place to play is by loving those that you see sitting next to you or that you interact with that are far or near or close. I think we look for ways to be connected and to understand and to love one another. And friends, I'm not saying that we just throw truth out the window. That could be really how you see this morning. But we see that John commands us to love with truth and action. It's both. That we let people come in and say, you are not acting like yourself. I have more for you. 
I think how we answer this question of what does love require of me has a lot to say about our spiritual maturity. I think it's a good indicator or compass of the direction that we need to head or where we need to grow or what the Lord might want to be doing in us. But I don't think that we can be considered spiritually mature if we are not answering this question in a way that is costly to us. To be honest, I don't want to be remembered or known as someone who read her Bible, came to church, and was wise. I want to be known and remembered as someone who loved extravagantly, who loved in a way that was costly, who loved in a way that gave everything. That's how I want to be remembered. That's how I want to grow in my discipleship and apprenticeship to Christ. See, there's this great parable that Jesus tells. It's this situation where he's watching folks throw things into the offering And there's some rich people who come in and throw in a bunch of money. And you know the story. There's this woman who comes and brings two copper coins. That's it. And he turns to his disciples and he says, that woman, she, she out of her poverty gave everything she had to live on. Everything. Friends, I think the invitation for us is to not love out of our wealth but out of our poverty. Out of the places in us that require us to lean in to Christ. That go, I don't want to give out of, I don't want to love out of the places that are easy, but I want to love out of the places that make Christ come alive in me. So I would just implore you to do the same. To love out of your poverty not out of the places of wealth. And to not move on from this question of what does love require of you until the Lord convicts you into action, to move towards the people in and around you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a God who loves us deeply, that it's out of your love and reservoirs within us that we love the people around us. I pray that you would move us to action, that we would love one another deeply within the four walls of this building. God, we say that we need your wisdom and your courage and your love. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.